Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is JF. In the late winter of 1990, when I was in the seventh grade, my classmates and I saw a UFO flying over Prescott Russell County in eastern Ontario. We were near the end of a 12 hour ride by chartered bus from Buktush, New Brunswick, where we'd spent the previous week. I was sitting exhausted with my head bumping lightly against the window staring idly at a low-lying cloud mass over the wooded hills north of the highway when something appeared in the sky. It was a light, or an aggregate of lights, fiery orange and deep green. The lights didn't blink like those on an airplane, but spun round each other in a rapid oscillation. Thinking it might just be reflections from inside the bus, I cupped my hands around my eyes and pressed them against the glass. There it was, even clearer, a large, luminous object moving parallel with the horizon, heading in roughly the same direction as we were, so undeniably there that it made a halo on the underside of the clouds. A kid sitting across the aisle from me said, Are you seeing what I'm seeing? And soon every kid on the bus was watching this thing in utter amazement. Our teacher saw it too, though he seemed strangely reluctant to acknowledge what was happening. The girls sitting in the seat behind mine started to panic. As for me, I was elated. I watched the object as it made a series of jolting maneuvers and didn't look away until it shot up through the clouds and disappeared from view. It would make sense to say that had this never happened, I wouldn't be doing this show today, that it made me a believer. But the spirit of full disclosure compels me to mention that seeing an unidentified flying object was the whole reason I was looking out at the sky in the first place. This is what I did as a kid whenever I found myself in a moving vehicle at night. I looked for UFOs. And that one time, for whatever reason, the impossible occurred. From then on, the expression, it's too good to be true, would ring hollow to me. While that other expression, I know what I saw, would find its full meaning, though the truth is that I don't know what it was I saw, and can say nothing about it other than that the experience of seeing it was otherworldly for all involved. Admittedly, mentioning that I was a believer before I saw the UFO will do little to bolster whatever credibility I may still have as the co-host of a show called Weird Studies. But the fact that I was looking for UFOs when I happened to see one seems important somehow. As C.G. Jung observed as early as 1956, the UFO phenomenon has, quote, an extremely important psychic component as well as a possible physical basis. UFOs are both out there in the world and in here in the soul. You can't subtract either aspect without losing the numinosity of a sighting like the one I was fortunate enough to experience. Of course, it'd be oddly solipsistic to say that my inner predisposition caused the UFO to appear. Of all the witnesses, I was probably the only one who was interested in the topic, and the experience was as real and memorable for all of them as it was for me. At the same time, I can't shake the sense that my state of expectancy 
somehow made me a participant in the event, whatever it was. Ultimately, maybe none of us was closer to the full reality of it than the girl panicking in the seat behind me. The term panic comes from Pan, the terrifying trickster god whom James Hillman says presides over both dimensions of nature. Nature out there, the labyrinth of the external world, and nature in here, the bottomless abyss of the psyche. Although UFOs have come up a few times on Weird Studies, this is the first episode we're devoting exclusively to the topic. Part of the reason is that Phil and I have been invited to speak at the Ohio UFO Heritage Conference, which takes place on May 5th and 6th in Dayton, Ohio, at the doorstep of the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. UFO lore junkies will know that Wright-Patterson was where the G-Men took the debris recovered from the saucer that allegedly crashed in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. Over the last few years, the American government has been quietly sharing some of what it knows, or doesn't know, about the phenomenon. And while we don't seem to be anywhere near figuring out what we're dealing with here, that we're dealing with something real is no longer open to serious doubt. So the conference has the double advantage of a great location and great timing. It has certainly put the UFO phenomenon in our sights, and we're both very happy with the conversation we had. We hope you will be too. And if you are, then perhaps you'll consider supporting the show by joining the Weird Studies Patreon. While it's true that this is our first flagship show on UFOs, we did record an audio extra on the topic a while back. It's available to anyone who signs up at the listener's tier. If you dig what follows, you may dig that too. All right, enjoy the show. One of my favorite expressions is uh, Kant's expression for the effect that David Hume's writing had on him, that it awoke him from his dogmatic slumbers. I always liked that expression. Yeah. And there's something I like about the intellectual gesture of waking up from your dogmatic slumbers. I'm an admirer of apostasy, or at least of people being able to say, I was wrong about this, or I was thinking the wrong way, and now I'm thinking in a different way. I always like it when that happens. So Metanoia, right? Reversal. Oh, and, is that the expression for it? Well, it's one term that, yeah, experiencing a total reversal that changes your worldview completely. A metanoia. Mm. Okay. It's the opposite of paranoia, which locks you into your current worldview. Oh, I see. Oh, very good. <laughs> Well, I don't know if I would go quite so far as to say I've experienced a metanoia in recent days, but I have at least briefly awakened at 2.30 in the morning to go to pee during my dogmatic slumbers. Yeah. I might go back to my dogmatic slumbers once this recording is over, but for now I am briefly awake. The thing I'm talking about is UFOs, and I'm realizing now that I have made the classic mistake of people in the territory of the weird, which is to say I found a congenial hypothesis early on, I grabbed onto it, and all of my thinking and reading has more or less buttressed that worldview. I'm making a 
confession from the heart here. Mm. I know it's not easy. Actually, I'm having a lot of fun doing it. <laughs> confession is a lot of fun. <laughs> Catholics know <The> this. <laughs> if there's one thing that irritates me is people who just can't say they were wrong. Mm. You know, like you see it all the time online where somebody says something stupid and then everybody tells them exactly how and why they're wrong and they just can't fucking admit it, and they keep digging themselves in deeper and deeper. Well, what I meant by blah is wankity, wankity, wank, and like try to weasel out of just having to I think I've seen this wrong. on Reddit once or twice. Yeah, it's possible <laughs> that one has seen this. Yeah. Anyway, um, maybe I could get to the point here. Yeah, what the hell? Early on, I read Patrick Harper's, in retrospect, very, um, I don't want to say idealistic, Neoplatonic, uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, somewhat idealistic view of the phenomenon. I have a feeling we're going to be using that expression a lot in this recording. The phenomenon being the catch-all word for not just UFO phenomena, but all kinds of paranormal phenomena that all seem to be bundled up together in a big sticky ball yeah. with UFOs and Bigfoot and... I don't know, fucking fairies and... The half of the world that we don't want to see or pretend doesn't exist. Right. In Macbeth, there's that great line, now the one half world, when witches celebrate pale Hecate's offerings. Hmm. There's another half to the world that we don't see during the day. And since modernity inheres in making every hour the day, night seems to vanish and manifest then in little weird events that we collectively call the phenomenon. But what we're talking about I think, is, yeah, one half of reality that we don't want to acknowledge. Right. But we'll get to that. But go on with your metanoia. Yeah. So recently we have been invited to appear at the Ohio UFO Heritage Conference, two-day symposium organized by Kelly Chase of the superb UFO Rabbit Hole podcast. And we have been invited to do a talk about UFOs, or let's say the phenomenon, from particularly the point of view of consciousness. So this conference is organized into two days. The first day focusing on the consciousness theory of UFOs. The second day on more nuts and bolts. And very quickly, for those of our listeners for whom UFO stuff is pretty foreign, like you don't pay attention to it. Those are the two fundamental ways people have approached the phenomenon. I mean, aside from just saying it's all bullshit, but if you agree that there must be something here, there must be something to a phenomenon so widely attested and for which there is so much evidence, mm -hmm. uh, admittedly evidence of an ambiguous kind, but evidence nonetheless, that, you know, surely there's something there. Well, the consciousness side would say there's a continuity between UFOs and the fair folk spirits and ghosts and goblins and various kinds of things that we might think of as being uh, one expression for is ultra terrestrial creatures, creatures that perhaps share this planet with us, but from other dimensions, perhaps we might say other planes, perhaps we might say these are inhabitants of an astral or spiritual plane that somehow manage in various ways to poke their nose into our affairs. That would be the more consciousness side, where we say consciousness is this thing that not only animates us, but animates a wide variety of sentient beings, and we are constantly encountering them on the astral, right? Mm -hmm. That would be one 
framing of the phenomenon. And the other would be, no, there's actual nuts and bolts craft. These are machines piloted by intelligent beings from places in this universe like our own, from other coordinates within knowable space-time. And there's often a big gap between those two explanations that follows fairly faithfully a gap between materialist and idealist understandings of all of reality, right? Mm -hmm. Materialists saying the only thing that we've got is material and an idealist saying that all apparent material is really ripples in the mind at large. So I am going to say that all this time I have had a very idealistic understanding of the phenomenon. And it's since being invited to participate in the Ohio UFO Heritage Conference that I've been reading a lot of UFO stuff and catching up, especially on the big disclosure moment in 2017 and various things that have happened since then. And I am now realizing that to fall comfortably in the consciousness only camp here is almost certainly a mistake. That's not to deny the power of the ultra-terrestrial hypothesis that is associated particularly with John Keel, but also echoed for many other serious researchers. I'm just saying that formerly I would have thought the idea that an actual spacecraft crashed at Roswell, that the U.S. military scavenged pieces of the wreckage, and that those pieces of wreckage have been examined as part of a covert U.S. military program to reverse engineer alien artifacts, formerly I would have said that I just simply didn't believe that. Because how are you going to be doing all of this shit with reverse engineering artifacts that come from fairyland? Not to say that I deny the reality of fairyland or like the other world, right? But the other world, in my experience, is not the kind of thing that produces crash debris. But I am beginning now to realize as I said at the beginning, I was a bit complacent in assuming that the ultra-terrestrial hypothesis would cover all meaningful evidence. And now I'm realizing that like any ordinary asshole straying into the weird, I grabbed onto a hypothesis that had the comforting feeling of solidity and predictability, and I held onto it in the face of proper evidence. So that's my mea culpa. Now, in case you think that I have now become a hardcore nuts and bolts man, no, I have not. I still believe there is a remarkable continuity between fairy folklore and all kinds of folklore going back God knows how long and the contemporary phenomenon. I just now feel I have less of a theoretical framework to understand that continuity or to understand the continuity between the purely psychic and the material. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I was hoping, JF, you could explain it all to me so that I would <laughs> regain my lost feeling of certainty, because this is, of course, an uncomfortable feeling, this uncertainty. This is a leitmotif of ours, right? The tension between materiality and matter and psyche, or materiality and imaginality, and how those things relate to one another. I've had this metanoia you've described several times, you know, bouncing from one to the other, because I think the binary we've been offered is itself the problem, right? Mm. It's the very mm. dichotomy 
that there might be such a thing as a truly dualistic structure to reality such that some things fall on the side of consciousness and some things fall on the side of matter. That's the problem. Mm. One thing I really love about Carl Jung's writings on the phenomenon, and I'm, I'm limiting the phenomenon now to UFOs, but in fact, the phenomenon, as we were saying before, includes a whole bunch of other stuff. But his writings on, on UFOs is he really is trying to get past this deadlock of matter and, and psyche to get to what he would eventually call the psychoid kind of structure of reality, which sees materiality and imaginality simply existing on a spectrum. And here I'm reminded immediately of Lionel Snell's wonderful writings on the four worlds that we briefly touched on in our episode on uh, Sasatpami. Where Lionel Snell says, well, what do we have really in reality? What is reality like? We have images. We have mental thoughts. In other words, logical connections between things. But those things are images. Now, some of those images are very resistant. They're very stable and consistent. And we call them material. And some of those images are less resistant, more flexible, malleable. We call those imaginary that is a, a revolutionary way of looking at reality. Revolutionary for us, but maybe very close to the way a lot of people used to look at reality, although they wouldn't have used those terms perhaps to describe it. So in other words, there is a kind of advance in how Snell's, Snell is framing it in a way that I think is new. In fact, it's new in a broad sense, because one place where you do find this expression of a structure of reality that would transcend the binary deadlock between material and imaginal is in Henry Bergson. And I happen to have here a short passage from Henry Bergson that I find to be one of the most important philosophical utterances since Descartes. And I would like to read it. It's not very long. And I think it will give us some, a way to move into what you were just expressing. So this is in the very opening page, I believe, the very first page of Henry Bergson's wonderful book, Matter and Memory, where he precisely is trying to work through this problem. And he says he begins from a point of view of common sense. Basically, he's like, I'm going to tell you how everyone sees things when they're not doing philosophy. But it sounds really weird. He writes, matter, in our view, is an aggregate of images. Again, remember what Snell says. And by image, we mean a certain existence, which is more than that which the idealist calls a representation, but less than that which the realist calls a thing, an existence placed halfway between the thing and the representation. This conception of matter is simply that of common sense, he says. It would greatly astonish a man unaware of the speculations of philosophy if we told him that the object before him, which he sees and touches, exists only in his mind and for his mind or even more generally exists only for mind, as Berkeley held. Such a man would always maintain that the object exists independently of the consciousness which perceives it. But on the other hand, we should astonish him quite as much by telling him that the object is entirely different from that which he perceives in it, that it has neither the color ascribed to it by the eye, nor the resistance found in it by the hand. The color, the resistance, are for him in the object. They are not states of our mind, they are part and parcel of an existence really independent of our own. For common sense, then, the object exists in itself, 
pictorial as we perceive it. Image it is, but a self-existing image. And this is the wonderful thing about what Bergson's calling on us to try and do, which is to conceive of an image that is not seen, a self-existing image, and to see reality as an aggregate of such images, some of which might be seen, some of which might not, because we ourselves are images amongst images. And so here we have completely erased the line between what we call imaginary, the images that present themselves to our consciousness when we try to see beyond the narrow zone of images that are immediately accessible to us and the images that are in that zone between things and ideas, between imaginings and perceivings, you know? And if you look at the world that way, just heuristically, and then look at something like the phenomenon, well, then you get a kind of inroad into what I think Jung is calling us to do, which is to look at this phenomenon as both material and imaginal, but to resist, and this is the key thing, to resist the move that Harper makes, I think, which is to glob onto metaphor as a way of explaining this phenomenon. Because the minute that you say, well, the world of consciousness, the world of the imaginal works through metaphor, you hear that often, you've basically made it unreal. To approach anything metaphorically is to approach a thing in terms of something else. And so you're negating the thing by making its essence or substance dependent on something else, i.e. the metaphor you're trying to apply to it. So there's a literalism to this way of seeing, which prevents us from saying from the consciousness end, well, these things are just what we used to call fairies. They're aspects of consciousness. They're aspects always, what they really mean is they're aspects of human consciousness. They converge on us. They are there for us. But Bergson's way of looking at things is no, every image is self-existing. So the alien that comes in and encounters you, the UFO that you see, has a self-existence, which is different from any particular imaginal apprehension you might have of it. Because what, how you see it is how you as an image interact with that image. It's relative. But there's something there that is beyond all your theories, beyond all your metaphors. There's something actually there. The problem is we don't have the language to incorporate it into our worldview. It haunts us as an anomaly, an eternal anomaly, a constant percussive kind of intrusion of otherness into our world. And since we are so determined on knowing the world inside and out, on being certain about what's possible and what's not, any intrusion of the so-called phenomenon hits us really hard. It opens up the abyss of infinite possibility. Well, if I'm wrong about that, then I'm wrong about everything. And we can't incorporate these particular images, these particular phenomena into, into our world. So we tried to put them on one or the other side. We'll keep spinning our wheels forever until we are able to conceive of reality in some way that transcends the old deadlock that Descartes put us in. And I don't want to shit on Descartes. I like Descartes. That motherfucker still owes me money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Don't expect that money. To... That fucking guy. I know. He lost that bet fair and square. I mean, he's, he's always got some fucking story, right? Yeah. yeah. Like I'm getting paid next week. Yeah. My car's in the shop. My old lady ran off with my best friend. It's always something with him. I know. The fucking guy. It's the, the worst is when he gets drunk and then he starts lighting up his farts with a Zippo lighter. <laughs> 
Jesus, I wish you wouldn't do that. <laughs> Had to reupholster my sofa because of that guy. <laughs> I guess the bottom line is that to think that there's nothing there is so silly. You know, Jung is very insisting on that. It's like, no, there's something going on. There's clearly something going on. As I have been returning to thinking about the phenomenon and realizing that a lot of my previous thoughts were complacent and naive, I've been revisiting some old chestnuts, for example, Mothman Prophecies, and he is firmly of the opinion that the source of our visitors, whatever that may be, it is not extraterrestrial origin. Keels and the people who really pioneered the idea that this phenomenon has been intimate with humanity from the very beginning. So he writes, this is on page 21, back in the 20s, Charles Fort, the first writer to explore inexplicable events, observed, you can measure a circle by beginning anywhere. Paranormal phenomena are so widespread, so diversified, and so sporadic, yet so persistent, that separating and studying any single element is not only a waste of time, but also will automatically lead to the development of belief. Once you have established a belief, the phenomenon adjusts its manifestations to support that belief and thereby escalate it. If you believe in the devil, he will surely come striding down your road one rainy night and ask to use your phone. If you believe that flying saucers are astronauts from another planet, they will begin landing and collecting rocks from your garden. Now, I have to say, the degree to which the phenomenon is responsive to human cognition oh, yeah. and intelligence, that is something that I have, in fact, experienced in my own traversal of the weird, which has had a lot more to do with incorporeal daimons than it does with visitors in mechanical spaceships. I have never seen a UFO, whereas you have. Um, so you and I are coming at this from a slightly different perspective. Mm. But apropos what you just said, and I like what you just said, and I love the playing of the Bergson card. That's a great passage. Mm -hmm. Images as uh, self-existent things. Well, this is getting very close to our idea of the imaginal, isn't it? Exactly, uh, yeah. As a kind of vast storehouse of images that somehow manifest in our world. And I agree that emanationism, either of the sort that Lionel develops in Sisotomy or of a sort that we find in more traditional Neoplatonic sources, the emanationism gives us a remarkably good way to understand how that might be. Nevertheless, the degree to which the phenomenon seems either, depending on your point of view, parasitic on human intelligence, on human mind, or symbiotic with human mind, makes me wonder if that doesn't complicate that idea of self-existent images. Oh, I see. You're, you're negating your own metanoia now. <laughs> well, it's kind of, that's kind of what I do, right? Yeah. Yes, I mean, no, no, you know, let's, let's push against Skepticism it. is always warranted, and that's a bit of skepticism right yeah, there. Philosophical okay, sure, skepticism. Sure. But you could make that argument about, I mean, I could argue that my bookshelf only exists when I turn around and look at it. The question is that the, the question Hate to is tell you, bro, it totally disappeared. <laughs> Fuck! It's like a, can, it's like a yawning, it yawning abyss. It's <laughs> like these cold We're stars, full of Cthulhu monsters, <laughs> and <laughs> um, it's true that subjective states, states of mind, emotional states, they seem to correlate with this experience. But 
to go from there to saying that correlation equals causation is the classic mistake. The fact that I'm in this state of mind when I see X does not mean that X did not exist before I entered that state of mind. It simply means that I experienced X when I entered that state of mind. So that's the one thing I would say. The argument that you make in order to absorb the phenomenon into your own subjective experience such that it is completely causally dependent on your subjective experience is an argument that if you follow its logic will extend to all things. All of your experiences are describable as caused by your experiencing them. That's the classic Berkeley move. It's that experience equals existence. Now, sure, but you don't need to avert to any kind of comprehensive idealism to note that the phenomenon very often consists of messages for individual people. Like, what the fuck is a synchronicity? A synchronicity means nothing to anybody, for the most part, except the person who experiences it, who always experiences it as an extraordinarily personal meaning for them and them alone in this particular situation. Well... The for themness of the meaning is necessary. I mean, a synchronicity is a different type of thing. We're talking about the prospect of UFOs being things that actually exist as opposed to just manifestations of our own states of mind. Like, right. I'm just saying that the logical move you make to make the argument that Heel is making is a move you can make with anything. Yeah, you don't have to make. You can say that it doesn't apply to my lamp and my desk, but it applies when something doesn't fit a broadly modern construal of reality. Then it applies. But what you're pointing out, and this is really important, is that there seems to be an inextricably kind of subjective aspect to the experience. Yeah. And that moves us towards what Jung is saying. Yes, exactly. That's very true. Because these things are appearing to us for reasons, but the minute that we simply swallow up the phenomenon back into ourselves such that the existence of these things becomes fully dependent on our experiencing them, then I think that we have lost the phenomenal aspect of the phenomenon. All we have are hallucinations. What's the difference at that point between hallucinations and the, there's nothing to talk about. We can completely psychologize the entire issue. I just feel that this conversation is trying to round up the phenomena to ordinary matter. And so the arguments that we can make about ordinary matter, like, um, you know, Bishop Barclay's arguments that amount to basically the position that I know you hate, that for something to exist, it must be perceived to exist for something to be, it must be seen. And you rightly say that that argument in its full dress version can be applied to absolutely everything under the sun. Very true. And I'm not making that argument. What I'm saying though, is that the phenomenon comprises a range of things and experiences, phenomena that differ from ordinary matter by virtue of its peculiar entanglement with the human. Well, that does the it? Human, that, that, yeah. yeah, I guess that's well, where I would say, sometimes it seems that way. But some, like my own experience of a UFO was simply something we saw that behaved very strangely in the sky. It had no personal stake for us. Now, you could decide that if I see a UFO, then there was a kind of personal aspect. 
in some writings, you'll see that. And even in Jung, you see that to a certain extent because the archetype is manifesting for reasons that have to do with where humans are at. But Jung would still insist that the archetype exists whether humans are aware of it or not. It's the experience, the coming to consciousness of the archetype or of the entity from the unconscious that is dependent on our subjective state. It's the fact that we perceive it. It's there whether we want it or not, but we perceive it. And in our perceiving it, we perceive it because a connection is made, right? Because something is revealing itself to us, but it's something that exists whether it's like if you have like a growth, you know, that's a horrible metaphor, but in like your a tumor, a or tumor, yeah, the tumor has immense subjective significance. It comes with messages to you. It comes with incredible life changing consequence, but it was there before you knew it. And if you just think that it just appeared when you got the diagnosis or when the doctor decided it was there, well, then the fact is that what makes an encounter with the other, capital O other, meaningful is that the other exists as other, not as simply aspect of you. And I'm not saying that's what you're saying, right. but I think that in the record, in the history of the phenomenon, you have all kinds of instances where an encounter of what looks like absolute meaninglessness, as random as someone encountering a bear or wolverine, you'll have tons of examples of those. And then you have examples of them like kind of like coming in peace and bringing a message and choosing, singling someone out and telling them where they come from and taking them for a tour of Venus. You have all these, these examples of what's going on. And I super agree with you that we need to differentiate the behavior of ordinary matter from the behavior of these things. I don't think these things are simply, I'm not a nuts and bolts guy person either. All I'm saying is that the imaginal has a kind of quasi-materiality. It behaves much more like matter, and matter behaves much more like images than we tend to think, because we've blurred that distinction. Well, there we are in perfect agreement. And I think we are generally in agreement on this and mm -hmm. um, are getting in a quarrel over idealism. Well, your idealism proximity sensor went off. I can actually see the flashing red light over your head. <laughs> If otherness can be made to mean something other than otherness, I, that sets off a red and light. Yet, and yet it's, oh, it feels like some kind of trick that's being played on us conversationally, though, because even in averring that, you know, you were talking about the tumor a second ago. Mm -hmm. That's real close to being like, tumor doesn't care what you think about it. Like to you, it's loaded with all kinds of meaning. How could it not be? But that tumor is just like this thing indifferently present in your body. And it ultimately doesn't have to do with whatever narratives you have about it. Right. Isn't that what fucking so-called skeptics are always saying about? But no, but we're trying to get past the deadlock. We're trying to say both things. We're trying to say both that it has tremendous subjective value and that it has an objective self-existence. I'm just saying that it's super damn easy to fall back into either a complacent materialism or a complacent idealism. Exactly. And we're trying to walk a tightrope. So I agree with you. Yeah. The other thing I would say is like, okay, so that kind of weird entanglement with the human you have invoked jung and jung's idea of archetypes and that seems to me to be a pretty good thing to bring about in this context because would archetypes exist without human beings no i do not believe they would well for jung they would because you see them all over the natural world human consciousness is like the last part the last thing to come into the equation he talks about archetypes being active in instinctual behavior by animals 
In fact, there's a passage here where he gets to the point, and this is something. Is this, he, is this his book on UFOs? Yeah, his writings on flying saucers. But okay. in this, he has Which a kind I haven't of, read. Yeah, he, he's great, Jung, because whenever he writes something, he feels the need to recap his entire view of everything before he gets to the point, which means that if you read stuff, you get more and more refined expressions of what it is he's talking about. And here in this passage, he basically says what you've said before, that the idea of the unconscious is a purely heuristic, temporary, almost throwaway model or term or concept that we're using for something we simply don't understand. So he says, um, through this attitude, he, meaning the, the human being, constellates helpful and at times dangerous powers in the unconscious. Helpful if he understands them, dangerous if he misunderstands them. Whatever names he may give to these creative powers and potentialities within him, their actuality remains unchanged. No one can stop a religious-minded person from calling them gods or daimons, or simply God, for we know from experience that they act just like that. So calling the powers of the unconscious gods would imply self-existing. Certainly gods pre-exist humans, mythologically speaking or religiously speaking. Right, right. If certain people use the word matter in this connection, believing they have said something, we must remind them that they have merely replaced an X by a Y and are no further forward than before. The only certain thing is our profound ignorance, which cannot even know whether we have come nearer to the solution of the great riddle or not. Nothing can carry us beyond an it seems as if, except the perilous leap of faith, which we must leave to those who are gifted or graced for it. And then he says later on that the experience of the numinous, he says, if we try to define the psychological structure of the religious experience, which saves, heals, and makes whole, the simplest formula we can find would seem to be the following. In religious experience, man comes face to face with a psychically overwhelming other. And yes, he locates the unconscious in the human. But at that point, he's already blurred the human. He calls the collective unconscious the objective psyche. And he sees archetypes at work all over the natural world. The archetypes are all present way before humans came around for Jung, because he is ultimately a kind of naturalist. So... Yes, the archetypes exist. What doesn't exist without us are the God images, the images of the archetypes, the particular forms they take in our mythologies and our imagination, which are dependent upon a particular perspective on them given to us by our biological makeup and our cognitive makeup. So yes, if you conflate the archetype with the image of an archetype or with the symbol of the archetype occasions, then you can reduce the archetype to the human. But the archetype is always something objective out there, which manifests as subjective images in the human mind. So the otherness to me is radically other in that it simply exists outside of us, outside of any particular mind. I mean, your understanding of Jung is far deeper than mine. And really, I am going on my understanding of the archetypes from the essay that we did a two-parter on mm -hmm. a couple of years ago on the relation of analytic psychology to poetry or yeah. poetry to analytic psychology. Yeah. Fucking stupid Analy name. <laughs> I, I never get, I never stop being annoyed Me at neither. having to remember the title of that marvelous essay. The stupid title. It's stupid. <laughs> I'm mad. <laughs> the way we talked about it, as I recall, was the archetypes as almost sort of like the canalization, the tracks made by repeated human experience and understandings. Yeah, that's how he describes it in some essays. But the further you go into his writings over time, 
they progressively objectify the archetypes. And then eventually uh, he ends up with Wolfgang Pauli saying that the archetypes are the fundamental structure of material reality, whether humans are there or not. Okay, well, that's a philosophical shift. We could say that... A metanoia, I mean, you one might say. Yeah, one might. But the point is that such shifts always remain possible. Like, yeah. I guess I'm going to just jump to the end of this or, or short circuit this conversation by grabbing at a certain... I guess, maybe philosophical despair or nihilism. I believe firmly, if there's one thing that I have experienced personally from trying to read about, understand, even experience the phenomenon, is that whatever frame you come up with to house it, there will always be some bit of it that is sticking out of the frame. Yes. It is the most radically unframable thing. That's what Jung was saying in that passage. Yeah, yeah. and I, I was actually really picking up on that from what he was saying. But I think that even extends to the question of like, if these things are manifestations of archetypes, are those archetypes in a privileged relationship with the human? Or are they contingently there for the human? Like the course of the world could have followed a different path. Human beings never develop and still those archetypes would be there. Regardless of which side of that conversation you come down on, you're going to end up as a result drawing a frame to contain the phenomenon. And you will find, as you have for every other frame you have ever drawn, there's some bit that doesn't yeah. fit. This radical mystery. Yeah. It is the most, I mean, God, more than with any other single phenomenon, with UFOs, I find myself just coming up against the blank wall of radical mystery. Even to the extent, even to the extent that I can no longer say, oh, it's just good old radical mystery. I know what radical mystery is. Yeah. It's where you well, just look at the universe and you're like, what the fuck? Because there are actual things that people discover. There's actual progress that is made. Like what happened in 2017 is qualitatively different from anything that has happened before. And I, I want to kind of talk a little bit about that 2017 disclosure moment because it is still kind of frying my brain. But even if I decide that the, you know, the, the stuff coming out of the Pentagon now represents some kind of privileged take. Final, yeah, final say or something. No, it's not. No, right? it's not. Because it seems to me that the more disclosure there is, you know, Jung is, he wrote about the UFOs in the 1950s because he got interested in the phenomenon right from the start, right from 1947, the Roswell stuff. He started collecting everything, all the books, all the articles, and he maintains a very, like an admirably acrobatic stance on the material. Like he is completely open and yet very skeptical at the same time in a way that I think you're modeling for us. The way he writes about it, on the one hand, it looks like we're exactly in the same spot as we were before. He is completely against the idea of secrecy. He says, uh, what astonishes me most of all is that the American Air Force, despite all the information it must possess, and despite its alleged fear of creating a panic similar to the one which broke out in New Jersey on the occasion of Wells's radio play, he's talking about H.G. Wells, or the world's uh, radio play, which caused panic. Um, a mass kerfuffle. What astonishes me, Jung says, is that the Air Force is systematically working towards the very thing, the panic, by refusing to release an authentic and reliable account of the facts. All we have to go on is the occasional information squeezed out by journalists. 
Sounds familiar? It is therefore impossible for the uninitiated to form an adequate picture of what is happening. Although for eight years I've been collecting everything that came within my reach, I must admit that I am no further forward today than I was at the beginning. That reminds me of uh, James's essay on the, the Confessions of a Psychic. Uh, yeah, yeah, I had the same thought. I yeah. still do not know what we are up against with these flying saucers. The reports are so weird. This is one of a rare occasion where Jung uses the word weird, are so weird that granted the reality of these phenomena, one feels tempted to compare them with parapsychological happenings. Now, in a way, there is, you're right, there's a kind of like uh, sea change that happens in 2017 with the government acknowledging that they're looking at something and they don't know what it is. And that is what they disclose. We don't know what these things are. They did hint, some of the material hints that they might have material evidence. That seems to be the piece that they haven't yet acknowledged publicly is that they do have material. But I don't think that ultimately they know what's going on. They simply know that it's much more than simply mass hallucination or mass psychological projection, that there's a there there. And to me, maybe that's just my own bias, there there, something being there means something being there even if you're not there or else I don't know what we're saying. So there's a, an end of the wedge that's out there in the world, and yet it is experienced as so fundamentally tied up with us that you can't simply look at it as an ordinary object, as a scientist would. You can't take the subjective element out of the experience. So I agree with you on that. There's something deeply psychical about it all at the same time. It's not simply flying saucers coming from Venus. But one of my favorite trope of the phenomenon is those occasions where people take a photo and then afterwards see the object in it. Because mm -hmm. those examples point to a self-existing image, an image that was there that nobody saw, but someone happened to snap you know, a picture and there it was. That's just one end of the wedge. I agree that there's the whole other side of it, which is what are we to do with this and how does it relate to our subjective states. That's the other end of it. So the both sides like, are important. Like, like all of those people who take a picture of a UFO and then realize that their film and their camera got irradiated or It happens some all shit, the time. Which happens yeah. all the time where yeah. it's like- Or where there's in nothing fact, there. Yeah, where in fact it seems as if, no, the object is not just something out there indifferently, whether I happened to stray upon it or not, but something that seems intimately involved in my decision to or attempt to take a photograph. Exactly. Or there's also just the mercurial nature of the phenomenon itself in its manifestations. For instance, sometimes a UFO looks like a metal disc and sometimes a UFO looks like a glob of liquid. Yes. The fact that there's material evidence just makes it even weirder. It doesn't make it clearer. Oh, indeed. This is really kind of why I'm, I'm kind of going on about this is that like there is material evidence. I think so. I mean, there's a documentary I saw recently called The Phenomenon, which is very, very good. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it, it shows Jacques Vallée, who has had a real interest in recovered, I don't know, call them exo artifacts or whatever, re recovered materials purportedly from spacecraft or from UFOs. In fact, he authored the first peer-reviewed essay in the 1990s on the chemical composition of various bits of recovered material. And in this documentary I just saw, it came out in 2020, he's talking about a new piece of technology, can't remember what it's called, that allows them to understand the atomic structure 
of sampled materials on a level hitherto impossible and that they're finding all kinds of crazy impossible readings from this material. I mean, it's discussed very briefly. There's somebody from Stanford who's assisting Valet. But the thing is, it's coming from Jacques Valet. Valet at this point has earned the right to be trusted to some extent. I think so, yeah. Certainly respected. He is the most OG of UFO investigators and somebody who clearly has never lost a high sense of skepticism and intellectual integrity. But here he is after more than half a century of this research, still at it, still firmly in belief that he is chasing something that has some real extension into our world, even as he's one of the guys who, in Passport to Magonia, pointed out the continuities between UFO lore and, you know, fairy lore or or just yeah. like old-timey lore of eldritch beings from the beyond. Suffice it to say, the material... Evidence is not just the stuff that Valet is testing or that we conjecture to have been recovered from the Roswell crash or whatever. It's also the existence of people like Jacques Valet or the insiders coming out from the Pentagon to talk about the phenomenon in 2017 until this day. Louis Elizondo, Christopher Mellon, and a number of other people who were sort of grouped around Tom DeLonge's organization. What does he call it? To the stars or something? To the stars. Uh, is that yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. I can't, I Which forget. I don't think exists anymore. At least it doesn't exist in the it's same It's called form. Blink-182. That's what it's yes, called. Yes, that's right. Uh, so the thing is that, you know, there's a concept of a like a web of trust that you can put more trust in somebody who you've known for a long time and who is known to many people who are known to you and who has a consistent reputation across all of these social connections. You can trust someone like that more than you can trust somebody who just came out of nowhere, knocked on your door and asked if you could lend them five bucks or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that is itself a kind of material confirmation. Well, Christopher Mellon, for example, is an actual dude who has an actual career that's verifiable along multiple lines. There is a history to that guy. And so it means something when that guy steps out of the shadows and becomes a leading voice for UFO disclosure. And of course, it's always possible to have corkscrewing, paranoid conspiracy theories that basically go on forever, that this is the ultimate disinfo program that Luis Elizondo, Christopher Mellon, and various other Washington insiders all got together to drive a stake through this monster's heart once and for all by pranking Tom DeLonge and faking this whole disclosure thing so as to send it all crashing down. All of I this- I think that's what Mark Pilkington would argue. I find it spectacularly unlikely. That's an example of an explanation that's actually harder to believe than the thing that it purports to explain away. I don't want to put words in Mark's uh, mouth, but I do believe the Mirage Men, the thesis, well, I know that the thesis of Mirage Men was that Oh, the UFO I 100% phenomenon. agree yeah. with the idea of Mirage Men, that there is a core of highly trained disinformation officers who've been working against this phenomenon for decades. I believe, in fact, I'm going to go further and say that I think secrecy is baked into the phenomenon. Yeah, I agree. And Jung saying, I don't believe in this secrecy. I'm actually astonished at his naivety. As somebody who had deep knowledge of the Western magical tradition, how could you believe for a moment 
that secrecy would not have a role to play. Well, that's not what he was in the saying. Phenomenon. But yes, I get it. He just says the Air Force should disclose, which should do what they're doing now, which they could have done back then. But okay, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. But you know, since you've invoked Sasatpami already, it's worth noting there's a whole chapter in Sasatpami on secrecy. I agree with you, but can I react to what you were saying just sure. now? Because you were mentioned yeah. the material. I want to stay on the material artifacts for a second, because in our latest Patreon extra, we talk about apports. I don't know if that's how it's pronounced, it, apport in French, but apports are basically material objects that mediums in a spiritualist seance will manifest, will actually produce, expectorate from the spirit world and bring into our world. And some people have even been able to keep apports as souvenirs of their spiritualist experience. So that complicates things. So if we are going to speak of a phenomenon in the singular and therefore thereby allow correlations to subsist between UFO experience and spiritualist seance experience, for example, parapsychological experiences, then we have to reckon with the possibility that this material so-called, that the governments have recovered, is itself an instance of imaginality making itself material, and not, the, these aren't necessarily material artifacts from a spacecraft. That's basically, I think that's where Jacques Vallée ends up, is somewhere in that zone, where it's neither purely material nor purely... Um, but the, the other thing, and this is touches on where you're going now with secrecy, is that I would say that the core component of the phenomenon is deception. The deception is at the Absolutely. core of it. And it's no surprise to me that it's the intelligence establishment that encountered this thing, because it's always the intelligence departments or whatever of the various organizations, the Navy, the Air Force, that encounters this stuff. The intelligence world has always used language connoting the paranormal to characterize what it's doing, spooks, and that sort of thing. The centrality of secrecy and deception to the establishment puts it in a zone, a subjective kind of affective zone where encounters with such things is all the more likely. And I think that you're right. It was naive of Jung to believe that the Air Force would come out and say everything that they found for all kinds of reasons. But the idea is that if this material evidence is itself more along the lines of an apport than an artifact, a relic from a standalone craft that actually materially existed mm. at any point, then we are already lost in the kind of abyss of deception that characterizes this sort of experience. I can understand the hesitancy of a military organization to disclose this material stuff because they themselves don't really know what it is that they have. Like, sure. there is a fundamentally paranoid aspect to any group that is committed to espionage. Espionage inheres in a kind of paranoia. The spy has to pull off a very interesting trick. The spy has to believe that his or her nation is a fiction and also that it's worth their undying loyalty to the point where they will literally die in some Near Eastern prison cell before they disclose the secrets of this fiction that they are engaged in creating, which is the nation state and the idea of the nation state. There's a reason why John D was the original 007. Espionage has always been in bed with the paranormal. It is always already an engagement with the uh, anomalous and the other. That just colors everything. That makes it so unlikely that we'll ever get satisfying disclosure. The disclosure yes. is a disclosure of bafflement. It's the disclosure of 
it's a great WTF. Like they don't know what's going on any more than we do because we're dealing here with something that's so anomalous that it's just impossible to integrate it into our worldview without changing that worldview. What I understand you to be saying is a version of what William James said at the end of a long career as a philosopher, psychologist, and paranormal researcher, something many people forget about William James. We talked about this in the parapsychology William James episode, mm -hmm. how, you know, he writes in that essay, I think it was Confessions of a Psychical Researcher. He says, you know, when I started researching this decades ago, I figured that when I got to the end of my career, I would either have decided that the evidence decidedly tilted in favor of psychical phenomena existing or decidedly would tilt away from it. But what I did not expect is that the exact balance of the forces pro and con would remain in exactly the same equipoise decades later. You know, expected progress of some kind, either progress towards skepticism or progress towards affirmation of the phenomenon. But what actually happened and what always seems to happen with the phenomenon or the many phenomena of the weird is that you always seem to end up running furiously and never getting anywhere. It reminds me of uh, like a shepherd tone. 
that gives the auditory illusion of always rising but never actually going anywhere or for that matter falling but never going anywhere through the skillful manipulation of overtones that unless you know how to listen for them you probably won't notice or a Penrose staircase it works the same way it looks like we're going up an eternally ascending staircase and yet we remain stuck in place on a two-dimensional plane I don't know this but it's a conviction that I'm going to reach the end of my life whenever that may be and things will be different, but we won't be one inch closer to so-called disclosure. And I also feel that we won't be one inch further away from it either. Yeah. And I feel like the best possible evidence of this is what happened after 2017. So for the first time in modern history, after the establishment of a UFO phenomenon, which is, although we could say that the phenomenon, there's evidence that it goes back to the very origins of the human species and possibly earlier, we can say that at least the particular framing of it as UFOs flying machines from outer space is very much a post-war phenomenon with a few sprinkled outliers from before World War II, right? The um, first time in the history of the modern UFO phenomenon, the longed for disclosure from official sources within the U.S. government, from people who are in a position to know, happened. They released cockpit videos of unexplained flying craft, and the U.S. government officially acknowledged that they don't know what these things are. Okay, this is the moment we've all been waiting for, right? And what was the result in the American or the world consciousness? Fucking nothing. No. Nothing has changed. Nothing. And that itself is almost the most interesting aspect of the 2017 disclosure, that we finally get to this historically original moment and it doesn't make any difference. It's as if, I mean, I'm actually picking up on something you said that I strongly agree with, or at least something that was implicit in your earlier remarks. There is something inherently secretive, secretive and deceptive about the phenomenon inherently, not a contingent feature of it, not we are waiting until humanity is ready to hear the message of the space brothers, right? Not secrecy in order to accomplish this, that, or other ends to protect the American people, blah, blah, blah. Secrecy is what this thing is. And And this actually is an example of how it seems to be so intimately related to the way human beings, individual human beings and human society writ large, interact with it. That, okay, some major wall of secrecy falls and an even more powerful and durable one springs up in its place. The wall of public indifference. Yeah. The strange mental adjustment that almost everybody in our society seems to have made, which is, yeah, how about that? Yeah. Yeah, I guess there must be something. And then going back as if nothing had happened. If you really thought about the implications of this, they're real and they're here. Just that degree of disclosure and the highest levels of government confirm this. Not just the U.S. government, but other governments as well. Let us not become too American-centric here. The response to that is a kind of collective narcosis that in response, we all go back to sleep. 
I mean, if you really consider the possibility they're real and they're here, everything in your life would change. Well, yeah. Everything in your life would change. I can't emphasize. And yet it didn't. And yet nothing happened. This to me is the most extraordinary paranormal phenomenon. <laughs> I agree with you, but I, I also think it makes sense that the initial reaction would be indifference or denial or like uh, often when you get a, a really nasty diagnosis, there's a whole kind of psychology of the the stages of grief or, that follow from such a thing. And one of them is kind of denial. I think we're in that stage. You know, 2012, I was kind of um, involved in, in that because I was working for Daniel Pinch back at the time, publishing on his website. And he built his whole kind of career around 2012, the year Quetzalcoatl comes back and the Mayan calendar shifts. And, and my first ever printed publication was in a book called Towards 2012 Perspectives on the Next Age, which I knew at the time when it was published that this would soon become a very embarrassing thing to put on my CV because <laughs> I knew that nothing <laughs> would happen in 2012. Now, having said all this, I have become convinced that everything changed in 2012. I remember, and you'd have to, I could be corrected on this, but I remember right around the 21st of December, 2012, Obama allowed some information pertaining to something or other to come out. <laughs> All the details elude me, but I remember that there was this new spirit of transparency, which became a catchword after 2012. Of course, we realize now to what extent transparency means secrecy and deception, but whatever. The point is that there was there's a apparently shift. a Yiddish there's apparently a Yiddish proverb, I read this somewhere, that truth is the safest lie. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, I'm sorry. Yeah, or or Macbeth, who says, you know, enough of these fiends. He's talking about the weird sisters who lie like truth, you know. <laughs> Very good, um, yeah. Or Banquo, he says, uh, tis strange and sometimes the instruments of darkness tell us truths to betray us in deepest consequence, you know, that the, mm. the deception can use truth. So, yes, exactly. But I do think that there was a shift, but it's taking time to manifest itself and to make its effects felt. I believe in global weirding, and I see disclosure as part of that process by which we are becoming reacquainted with that one half of reality, which we were able here in the West to pretend didn't exist for four centuries. That time is over. There's a reckoning with the existence of what Jung called the unconscious, even while he said that that term was insufficient. There's a reckoning with the other half, the other half world that is, I think is absolutely happening. And it's manifesting in all kinds of ways, not all of them having to do with the phenomenon directly, but there's a kind of uh, indiscernibility of polarities now, male, female, that sort of thing. There's all kinds of ways in which this rumble under the earth, this great kind of compromising of structures that we had thought were absolutely necessary, stable, consistent, universal, and permanent. And I see disclosure as part of that. So something's changing, I think. And the best strategy to deal with that is to pretend nothing is changing. And that's just, you know, you pretend the sky isn't falling because dealing with the falling sky means you really have to change your your day you know it's and i agree with you that but yeah. everybody is acting like the sky is falling everybody every day is rehearsing any number of reasons the sky is falling yes. environmental collapse and plague and war etc but not ufos only a few scattered weirdos are actually worrying about the sky falling 
taking the form of UFOs. And I'm not saying scattered weirdos like it's a bad thing. Hey, they may be the ones who are right about it. But I'm just saying like, no, we live in an apocalyptic time. And yet somehow UFOs are exempted from that universal state of apocalypse. That's interesting. But I think that there's a type of obsession with catastrophe that's built into capitalism. And so we imagine constantly and we actually confirm and detect constantly all these existential threats. And this would be one more of them. But I think that this one, because of the otherness of it, because specifically, I think precisely because it is so other that it implies something looking back at us in the universe, something that would be there if we weren't there precisely. That's what makes it so difficult to assimilate into the logic of uh, late capitalism, you know, the logic that Mark Fisher is expounding on when he says that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. Well, I think the UFOs represent the end of capitalism, and that's very, very hard to imagine. It's a challenge to the very notion, the notion that is central to capitalism and to the metaphysics that capitalism depends upon, which is a kind of anthropocentric Everything converges on the human metaphysical stance, which is as present in idealism as it is in materialism. It's simply the idea that to be is to be seen. That is the ultimate logic of capitalism. That's the whole, if you read the Marx's writings on the commodity, it's all predicated on this type of thing, that the object appears in its being seen and it's being desired. I think that the UFO thing is just a challenge to that. And not just the UFO, all of the weird. The weird is a challenge to that. So that's the apocalypse that's actually coming. And it's the one apocalypse that we can't actually cognitively deal with or accept. And it's the one also, the one apocalypse that might have a shot at saving us from all the other apocalypses, which are clearly on the radar, like climate change and everything else. I mean, I won't get into the nuts and bolts implications, but... If there were sources of energy that could allow some of the maneuverings that these so-called material objects perform, then that would point at the possibility of solving our, the energy crisis. Now, I'm not going to be that optimistic because I don't believe it's material in that sense. Nevertheless, I do believe that coming to terms with the weird is certainly the kind of metanoia we need to experience as a civilization to save ourselves from ourselves. There is one. Actually, there's probably several possible hypotheses that we could use to explain the thing that we're wrangling over in this episode. So basically, this episode has been a series of variations on the theme. And the theme is like, is the phenomenon self-existent and separate from us and in some sense aloof from us such that our contact with it is to some degree contingent? Or is there something essential about the connection between human beings and the phenomenon? One way of having it both ways is to rely on a hypothesis that I think Keel once said, like, we are livestock, you know, humans are livestock. And I think this has been echoed by a number of more contemporary voices, including Tom DeLong. The idea that human beings have been engineered by some species in some manner or other, that human beings are perhaps something like, you know, domesticated cattle or pigs, organisms native to this planet, but whose development has been completely transformed by the stewardship or enslavement, depending on your point of view, 
of exos, of some other intelligence, right? From which point of view, that other intelligence presumably is doing any number of things, perhaps engaged in other agricultural projects. Perhaps uh, they have their own enterprises that have nothing to do with agriculture, just as our own society. There are farmers and then there are, you know, other people who don't farm. Um, <laughs> so self-existent beings out there in the universe doing their thing, but also because we are basically like sheep or pigs to these beings, of course, it's all about us. It could not help but be yeah. all about us. Just like the animals and animal farm are right when they realize that it's all about them. And just like the proletariat is right when it realizes it's all about it. Mm -hmm. It makes us central to their interests, but it also maintains the idea that they exist outside of our field of experience. In other words, the aliens we encounter are those who toil the peasants, and then the uh, those who fight and those who pray, the other orders of the medieval feudal era, are out there doing their shit out in, in the galaxy and uh, don't there care about us at all until, unless they need to have a, a quick bite to eat, in which case we become essential to them as well. Now, I should say right away that that's not what I quote unquote really think, but it's an interesting hypothesis and it sure accounts for an awful lot of difficulties that we've been trying to wrestle to the ground in this episode. The only problem being that it leaves a ton of shit out of its calculations as well. It's just another theory that gives us a purchase on one part of the problem and does nothing to help us in other parts of the problem. It certainly aligns the UFO myth, let's call it, Jung calls it a living myth, with more traditional folkloric, quote unquote, beliefs about fairies and such to whom we are a kind of source of sustenance, right? The fairies exist whether we're there or not, but they need us for some reason. They feed off of us. And here we're deep in Twin Peaks territory. Mm. Because Twin Peaks is essentially, it's very Bergsonian in that it transcends the dualism of science fiction and um, fantasy by giving us a show that's obviously about daimons. Mm -hmm. Are they aliens? Well, there, there are some extraterrestrial kind of notes that in the season two of Twin Peaks, the original series, where they get messages from space. The owls are not what they seem. Oh, yeah. And also the secret dossier, the novel that Mark Frost wrote in right. advance of the third season. Tons of UFO stuff in that. Exactly. So there's an extraterrestrial element, but also there's a daimonic element. These mm -hmm. creatures that live above the convenience store in the Black Lodge or whatever are demonic intelligences independent of us, but also deeply dependent on us. I want to taste through your mouth, right? That's what Bob says to, right, to Laura right. in one of the most horrific lines of the show. Mm. Or the, the man from another place when he touches, this is a formica table, green is its color, reveling in his ability to feel matter because of yes. he feeds off of humans. They want to become fully material. What if the aliens are imaginal beings that want to become ordinary matter like us. They want to manifest in the actual. They want to stop being simply virtual. That's kind of a, what Twin Peaks is getting at. And here, it's not so much an agricultural metaphor or analogy, which I think to me is just a little too anthropomorphic in the sense yeah, that- a bit, a bit pat. Yeah. Yeah. But it's more of a deep dependence of these things on us. And it maintains the, the special role that humans play in creation while at the same time acknowledging that other things are playing different roles 
and that there's a spiritual drama unfolding and that the UFO phenomenon is part of a wider, bigger, deeper cosmic drama. And that, I mean, I don't have a particular take on it, but I certainly have the feeling that something like that is happening. Yeah. That at least that's a promising road to go down and see what, what might come up. Well, and in truth, I've long felt in an inchoate and untheorized, or at least under-theorized way, that you can take the Twin Peaks mythos in much the same way that philosophers like Graham Harmon or occultists like Phil Hine have taken the Cthulhu mythos and used it as a fictional map. You recognize it's an avowedly fictional map. Yes, I know that Lovecraft was writing fiction. Yes, I know that David Lynch and Mark Frost are creating fiction with Twin Peaks. And yet, sometimes you can get some surprising results by using a fictional map for the real territory that you're trying to Mm -hmm. traverse. The situationists, I've talked about this, I think maybe in an earlier show, the situationists had a practice of drift walking, ways of walking in such a way that you divorce yourself from your habits, your customary ways of traversing civic space. I mean, just walking through town, you will, the very fact that you were walking through a familiar place will put you in a kind of narcosis of familiar patterns where you don't question your environment and the way that you make use of that environment. Indeed, the way that environment is constantly making use of you. Mm. And so the situation has had a number of techniques whereby you would divorce yourself from your habitual or customary perceptions and reactions. And one of them was to tear a map out of a gazetteer for a foreign place, like take a map of Paris and use that to walk around Bloomington, Indiana. Like, oh, I'm coming up to the Champs-Élysées or or, (laughs) or Notre Dame or whatever, and it's a big lots or something. But like that generates all kinds of interesting synchronicities. It actually tells you a ton of things about your world. That's a magical practice that can bear real fruit, right? Mm -hmm. And likewise, something that Phil Hine and Graham Harmon and various people who have taken the Cthulhu mythos in a more than metaphorical way, not just as a metaphor for certain things about the so-called real world that we want to explain, but to some extent as a map of our world. I think that you can do the same with the Twin Peaks mythos. And actually, the Twin Peaks mythos comes as close to, for me, as a successful explanation of what's really going on. But do you remember that story I told about when my son and I were driving, actually my whole family was driving up to the Twin Cities from Bloomington just before the finale of Twin Peaks season three. And my son and I saw an honest to God, according to Hoyle, Twin Peaks woodsman. Yeah. Minus all the soot. You know, they're black with soot, but in every other respect, exactly like the woodsman of Twin Peaks, right down to the weird hopping. And I remember talking to you about that. And I'm like, okay, that thing, Nicholas and I both saw it. I remember you saying at the time, did that guy then go and eat a burrito or something? Does that guy have his own life? Yeah. Was he just playing a part on the stage of your life for a second? And then, or was he some kind of, yeah. And when I think about that distinctly odd experience, I'm like, is that not just another example of what Keel was talking about in that bit that I quoted? Once you've established a belief, the phenomenon adjusts its manifestations to support that belief and thereby escalate it. 
there I was in the midst of a full on Twin Peaks induced psychosis. I was like so fully up in the Twin Peaks mythos and really strongly feeling a connection between the fictional world and the real world that I live in. I, it was like I was on one of those situation drift walks where I was using the Twin Peaks mythos as a map for the world I was in. And then surprise, surprise, that world coughs up a fucking woodsman. Yeah. And so while I would like to say, yes, Twin Peaks mythos, man, that's probably as close to the truth as we're going to get. Then at the same time, that skeptical voice in me wants to say, yes, but that's exactly what you would think, Phil Ford. But you saw a woodsman. So what's more likely that you generated a tulpa or that you, that your being into Twin Peaks allowed you to perceive something in the world that you wouldn't have perceived otherwise? Seriously. Fuck if I know, man. Well, one seems to be easier to believe, which is that this guy happened to look like a woodsman and then you experienced it that way. But that doesn't negate the kind of ontological penetration, let's say, or the accuracy of the Twin Peaks map. It's like, uh, there's a, here's another passage from Jung. The apparently physical nature of the UFOs creates such insoluble puzzles for even the best brains, and on the other hand has built up such an impressive legend that one feels tempted to take them as 99% psychic product and subject them accordingly to the usual psychological interpretation. In other words, 1% of the phenomenon is physical and 99% psychological. Should it be that an unknown physical phenomenon is the outward cause of the myth, this would detract nothing from the myth. For many myths have meteorological and other natural phenomena as accompanying causes, which by no means explain them. In other words, even if it was just a guy that happened to look like a woodsman, it doesn't take anything away from what you perceived in that moment. Sure. A myth is essentially a product of the unconscious archetype and is therefore a symbol which requires psychological interpretation. For primitive man, and I love the example here, any object, for instance, an old tin that has been thrown away. Oh, shades of Hallier. Can suddenly suddenly (laughs) assume the importance of a fetish. This effect is obviously not inherent in the tin, but is a psychic product. So what Jung is saying is that sometimes something truly weird materializes in the world. Sometimes you see something that isn't there. And sometimes there's synchronicity between something that's in your mind and something that's out there. And all three of those have equal weight for Jung in terms of their meaning and impact and real consequence for experience and for our understanding of the world. They're all three equally important. So in a way, it doesn't matter whether you generated the tulpa from a psychological point of view, from the point of view of what you do in your life. It doesn't matter whether you generated the tulpa, projected the image of the woodsman on someone who was already there, or whether a woodsman actually crawled out of Twin Peaks and walked across the parking lot, it all means the same thing. You saw the woodsman. So therefore, your attention is being called to the woodsman. What does the woodsman represent in the mythos? What can you do with that symbol? And there's a pragmatism that kicks in at some point when you realize how you can never get to the bottom of it. Then the best, and I think Jung's answer here is, is the most sensible, is to adopt a pragmatic point of view and an empirical point of view and say, well, what does this mean for me? What do I do with this knowledge? How do I progress? How do I use this map? As mysterious as this connection with the territory may be, what can I do with it? And I think that there's a lot you can do once you 
just acknowledge the specialness or the unique or singularity of the experience. There's a lot you can do with it that you won't get to do if you're just stuck on, and that's kind of your point, if you're just stuck on identifying what the hell it was that happened, which yeah. may be an unanswerable question. Unanswerable questions seem to be pretty much the stock and trade for the phenomenon, which I think a lot of intellectuals would say with some good reason, well, then why bother with it? That would be an entirely reasonable approach to UFO disclosure. I suspect some version of this is in fact what's going on in the head of most people who are just kind of indifferent mm -hmm. to this phenomenon. It might indeed have been in the back of my mind, because keep in mind, all this shit happened in 2017, and I've been almost as indifferent to the implications of that event as everybody else. You know, I kind of got this idea of like, yeah, you know, it's confirming what I always kind of thought, that there's something to this phenomenon, but then I didn't think about it that much more, right? I suspect there's a lot of people who would just sort of say like, I fully accept that it is quite as unknowable as you say, then why bother with it? Then this belongs to a spectrum of mostly unwelcome phenomena that have nothing to teach us, that only prank us, only lead us about in circles. And if that's the case, I decline to be pranked in this manner and will go on living my life as a material being, among other material beings, striving, suffering, laughing, crying, etc. But I don't need to bother with all this crap. And yet I absolutely, of all the things that could be said about this phenomenon, that to me is the most unacceptable. I agree. And again, here I'll, because I was reading Jung last night into the wee hours, I was really touched by his approach to it because on the one hand, he remains completely agnostic about what's really happening. And that's where all the problems start. But he is very attentive to the content of the phenomenon, what it is saying how it manifests, the forms it takes. It doesn't take the form of just a Cthulhu, unknowable Cthulhu monster. It takes the form of a flying saucer or of a cigar-shaped mm -hmm. object. And he goes, that's important. So regardless of what's really going on, we can still poetically read, because ultimately what Jung engages in in his work is a kind of poetic reading of reality, poetically mm. interpret what's going on. And where he comes down is like, and this is something that's it's asserted in Twin Peaks, and it's certainly asserted in UFO lore that all this really begins, all this really kicks into high gear after Hiroshima, after Trinity. Yeah. And I think Jacques Vallée's latest book you were saying kind of is all about yeah. that. Which I've been and, reading, yeah. And famous episode eight from season three of Twin Peaks shows us how Judy emerged from the billows of the mushroom cloud over New Mexico in 1945. So his interpretation is this. The atomic bomb is, of course, a physical event that is there whether we want it or not, in the sense that it's not something that's just in our heads. The bomb is a real object. Nevertheless, what interested Jung was its psychical kind of aspect, what yeah. it means. And what it meant for him was that the apocalypse represented by Hiroshima was for Jung a compensatory move on the part of the so quote unquote unconscious. It was bringing into our field of awareness things that we had wanted to repress and bury. It was the sudden emergence of a, a god in the image of Anthropus, you know, and this is what we were talking about in our last episode, Last yeah. and First Men. The UFO then appears. What form does it take? Well, usually, classically, the form of a circle. For Jung, the form of a mandala. 
The mandala for Jung is a symbol of wholeness. We have to be careful here. It's not a finished wholeness, as though such a thing existed for Jung. It's just the wholeness is just one archetype among many. But the archetypes of wholeness occur when we have serious and dangerous dissociation. So what happened after Hiroshima, after the Second World War, was the world was literally split in half by an iron curtain. And suddenly there was a binary structure to all of geopolitics. And to all of people's thinking, it became a cultural divide, this huge division, this dissociated state. Well, no wonder in that state, no wonder we get images of wholeness in the sky, circles in the sky that are calling us to repair the dissociation. Now, what Mm. happened? Well, the Iron Curtain fell, but it didn't stop the binary splitting. In fact, what happened is if we would compare the original Iron Curtain to a kind of a single tumor in the body of the earth, then we can describe our current situation as a completely metastasized cancer that is everywhere, which is why the divisiveness that we keep talking about these days exists on every scale. There's a little iron curtain between each. We don't have picket fences anymore. We have iron curtains now, and we have an (laughs) iron curtain inside each of us. That type of divisive metastasized dualism is now, I think, from a Jungian perspective, one of the reasons why we're seeing all of the, this proliferation of UFOs. And also, they're not even taking circular shape anymore. They're in every fucking Tic Tacs. Yeah, Tic Tacs, exactly. Yeah, what does it say that one of the most famous UFO sightings is of a Tic Tac-shaped craft? Perhaps the Space Brothers telling us that our breath stinks. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.